0: When I write history, one of the things that fascinates me is what we remember about it, what we don't, what got noticed at the time, and what seems in retrospect more worth noticing today.
1: I'm Scott Saul and this is Chapter in Verse, the books and arts podcast from UC Berkeley and its Townsend Center for the Humanities. Today we have in our studio Adam Hochschild, author most recently of Spain in Our Hearts, A Mesmerizing History of the Spanish Civil War, and the 3,000 Americans who, in defiance of their own country, crossed the Atlantic to join the Spanish Republican Army and fight the forces of fascism. We'll be talking with him about how he found so many fresh angles on the conflict, and how he understands its lessons. Stay close. I have to begin this episode with a disclaimer. No matter how riveting my conversation with Adam Hochschild will be today, it will not be nearly as riveting as Spain in Our Hearts, which is a spellbinding and ultimately heart-wrenching book. Hochschild is one of the best writers on the great moral dramas of history. He has written in King Leopold's Ghost on the drama of imperialism in the Belgian Congo and has written in To End All Wars on the drama of World War I as it played out in the trenches and in the staterooms. His stories are often epic in scale, but he has a novelist's eye for the telling detail and an activist sympathy with those who live in the trenches of history, as it were, the underdogs, the rabble-rousers, the journalists who are drawn into combat zones. Now, with Spain in our hearts, he has given us an eye-opening history of the Spanish Civil War, one that puts at its center the Americans who volunteered on the side of the anti-fascist Spanish Republic. Uh, Adam Hochschild is a celebrated author and journalist whose eight books have been finalists for or won such prizes as the National Book Award and the LA Times Book Prize for History. A founder of Mother Jones Magazine. He now teaches narrative nonfiction at Berkeley's School of Journalism. Adam, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you, Scott, for all those kind words. As you know, they're all true. Uh, well, I thought I would begin with a more general question for our listeners who are not so conversant in the history of the Spanish Civil War. I was hoping you might explain the basic fault lines of the conflict. Uh, you write that, that the conflict was, quote, at the same time, a right-wing military coup, and a left-wing social revolution. So maybe you could describe the shape of that left-wing social revolution and then how it kind of provoked this right-wing coup and where that military coup came from.
0: Well, let's roll the clock back to the, 19, to the 1930s, a grim time all over the world because of the Great Depression, taking a terrible toll uh, here in the United States. A quarter of the population was out of work. In Europe, same kind of thing but with uh, particularly nasty overtones because the strains of the Depression, the aftermath of the First World War, had given rise to the the birth of fascism. Uh, Mussolini had been in power in Italy since the early 1920s. Hitler came to power in Germany in 1933. Uh, And there were semi-fascist, quite anti-Semitic regimes in power in most of Eastern Europe. The uh, French writer Andre Malraux said uh, at this time, fascism is spreading its great black wings over Europe. One of the few bright spots was Spain. In 1931, there had been an upheaval. The king was forced to leave the country. Nationwide real elections were held for the first time. Statues were toppled. Spain became a republic, the Spanish Republic, uh, and remained so for the next five years. Chaotic, disorganized, but uh, a a republic with democratic elections. In early 1936, a coalition of liberal and left-wing parties won those elections, and it seemed as if reforms, which were very much needed because there was vast inequalities of wealth and poverty in the country, it seemed as if reforms would go forward at a faster pace. Uh, and uh, this was greeted, their victory in the, ele- in the elections were was greeted by progressives and democrats all over the world. However, July 1936, a large group of right-wing army officers rose up in revolt against the elected government of the Spanish Republic. And this was the beginning of the Spanish Civil War. These right-wing army officers wanted to stop land reform, get rid of any trappings of democracy, no free press, no free trade unions, restore power to the Catholic Church, which the republic had started taking away from it. Uh, They called themselves nationalists and they quickly came under the leadership of a tough-talking young general named Francisco Franco. And immediately it was clear where they stood politically and who their friends were, because within a matter of 10 days or so, both Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini began sending these Spanish nationalists uh, huge amounts of arms, airplanes, pilots, tanks, tank drivers, military aid. Mussolini sent 80,000 ground troops as well. Uh, The Republic resisted the revolt as best it could, but the nationalists quickly took over uh, about a third of the country and had increased that to nearly half the country by the end of the year. The social revolution you mentioned was going on simultaneously. What had happened was that in most of northeastern Spain, Barcelona, surrounding Catalonia, the nearby region of Aragon, uh, and other parts of the country, Uh, The coup attempt by the nationalists had been turned back not by loyal army soldiers, but by hastily organized, badly armed militia units formed by left-wing political parties and trade unions. And these worker militias suddenly found themselves in control of a huge swath of the Spanish Republic. The people in them were some socialists, some communists, the vast majority of them anarchists, a tradition that was very strong in Spain, even though paradoxically at this point it had largely died out uh, everywhere else in the world. And over the course of the next six months or so, they put into effect the most far-reaching social revolution ever seen in, in Western Europe. Workers took over factories, including the Ford and General Motors plants in Barcelona, Uh, Peasants took over these vast estates that they had once worked as landless laborers. Um, Engine drivers took over the railway system. Trolley car drivers took over the urban transport system. The cooks, waiters, and busboys at Barcelona's Hotel Ritz took over the hotel dining room, turned it into people's cafeteria number one for the poor. Europe had never seen anything like this. It was an extraordinary event. One of the very few people who from the rest of the world who wrote much about this was George Orwell, who arrived in December 1936 in Barcelona to volunteer to fight with one of these worker militias, was amazed at what he saw, wrote about it in his marvelous memoir, Homage to Catalonia. The nearly a thousand foreign correspondents who came to Spain at one time or another during the war almost totally ignored this. Um, They reported on the siege of Madrid, gains and losses on different battlefields. They were not interested in the social revolution. And when I write history, one of the things that fascinates me is what we remember about it, what we don't. What got noticed at the time and what seems in retrospect more worth noticing today.
1: Right. And I noticed that it it turned out it was the diary of a 19-year-old Kentucky woman who was a newlywed who in the end gives you a, a lot of insight on the American side uh, to how this uh, social revolution was happening in, in Barcelona. That's
0: right. I mean, the whole book is based almost entirely about on Americans who were in Spain at this time. I wanted to portray this period of social revolution, found that none of the American journalists who went there uh, were really the least bit in, interested in it. One or two of them did a few articles, but that was it. The most extensive record by any American left was by uh, a 19-year-old woman, Lois Orr, from Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, She'd been a student at her hometown university, University of Louisville. Uh, That spring, she had married a somewhat older guy who was an economics instructor there, and they'd gone to Europe on their honeymoon in the summer of 1936. Traveling in France and Germany, they got word of the nationalist uprising in Spain and of this social revolution, uh, which she was fascinated by. And she said to her somewhat older, somewhat stodgier husband, we have to go and see this firsthand. They hitchhiked to the Spanish border, walked across it. Uh, Two months after the nationalist uprising began, spent the next ten months living in Barcelona and working there. They both got jobs there. And during that time, Lois wrote home the most remarkable series of letters describing everything she saw and experienced. She then uh, spent most of the rest of her life rewriting and rewriting and rewriting endlessly a memoir of this period, which was never published, but which I was able to draw on. And it's by far the most extensive record left by any American and perhaps by any foreigner of what this social revolution experienced from the inside was like.
1: Yeah, I mean, really the account's so vivid. You You talk about how the nurses working in Madrid... Uh, were actually former prostitutes because the nuns uh, had been in charge of the nursing profession and they all went to Franco's side. So instead you had these women with uh, peroxide blonde hair and vermilion nails working as nurses. I mean, you see how the social order was so turned topsy-turvy by the revolution and by the demands of wartime. Uh, It's such a vivid portrait. And then on the other hand, you have the world of Franco and his troops and one thing I found fascinating about your account of, of Franco's side was how much he drew on the violence of imperialism uh, in how he prosecuted the war and even where he got his troops. Can you talk for a second about that? Was like, kind of, this is a story that really spans continents.
0: That's right. Well, one of the things that happened in Europe throughout the 20th century, and this was a striking instance of it, is that European armies who had learned the brutalities of war fighting colonial wars overseas came back to their own continent. And this was perhaps more true in Spain than anywhere else. Spain had been neutral in the First World War. They had lost the Spanish-American War in 1898 so rapidly that they almost didn't have any time to get fighting experience. But their battle experience had been battling Uh, rebels, Arab and Berber rebels, in what was then Spanish Morocco, which is the northern slice of Morocco. It's part of Morocco uh, today. And this had been very brutal warfare during the 1920s. And General Franco and most of the higher commanders around him were what were known as Africanistas, that they had... Uh, gotten their principal military experience in Africa. And indeed the most significant armed force that they had at their command in this uprising was something called the Army of Africa, which was partly Arab and Berber mercenaries from Morocco and partly something called the Spanish Foreign Legion, which despite the name was mainly Spaniards, usually ex-convicts whose prison terms had been remitted uh, on condition that they joined the army. And this force was initially stranded in Spanish Morocco when the uprising began. They had counted on it get, getting it to Spain quickly. But their plans went awry, and it was only with the help of aircraft supplied by Hitler and Mussolini that they were able to quickly transport these forces to the Spanish mainland. This was history's first big military airlift. Right. You get a sense of the
1: force of fascism colluding with the kind of legacy of uh, colonial uh, violence. And they even spoke, I think, of the Campaigns they were waging as limpieza, right, cleansing, cleansing, and that right. led to you know there was there was a lot of brutality on both sides of this conflict, but it seems that Franco's army uh, had a kind of a scorched earth policy.
0: Very much so. And this was really the first time uh, in Europe in a long time that there had been this kind of targeted, deliberate killing of civilians. In territory that they controlled during the war, the nationalists killed an estimated 150,000 civilians and another 20,000 afterwards, not to mention throwing hundreds of thousands of people in prison under absolutely horrible conditions. People who were targeted were anybody who was identified with the old democratic regime in any way, Uh, town officials, parliamentary deputies, more than 40 parliamentary deputies were shot. Uh, You know, it was enough to get you killed to be carrying a labor union card. So there was just the total ruthlessness uh, in nationalist territory about this. And there was a lot of violence on the Republican side, too, not Orchestrated by the government, but you know, done by angry mobs, like which freelance, uh, yeah, which killed an estimated forty-nine thousand people uh, in Republican-held territory, mostly in the first couple of months of the war. And that included several thousand members of the clergy because the Republic was quite anti-clerical, the Catholic Church was seen as being allied with the big landowners uh, and, and so forth. The republic's government, to its credit, did its best uh, by the fall of 1936 to bring these mass killings to a halt, but they certainly continued in nationalist-held territory.
1: They they weren't part of the official policy, whereas it seemed like, I mean, you quote from all these officials of Franco's uh, army who are proud to say, of course we... You know, annihilated this town, or so on. That's what we do, right? I mean, absolutely. You know, that was their way of prosecuting the war.
0: The war was nasty on both sides. Both sides routinely shot any officers captured in battle as prisoners of war. Uh, The nationalists shot many enlisted men as well.
1: Let's get to the American side of the story for a second. America, uh, on the face of it, is neutral. FDR is not eager to join this war for various reasons we can get into, but it also means that they don't want Americans to be going over to Spain to join the side of the Republican Army. Uh, now, you had, you know, in a sense, 2,800 stories to choose from mm-hmm. uh, of all those people who enlisted um, in the what Coast eventually called. The Abraham Lincoln uh, Battalion or Brigade. And I'm curious, there's, in the end, the spine of your story is a couple, uh, Bob Merriman and Marion Merriman, who actually have time at Berkeley, you know, kind of come into their leftism a bit at Berkeley. So I want to ask how you found them, how you decided they Mm -hmm. were going to be a kind of central couple Mm -hmm. uh, around which you would kind of
0: string your story. Yeah. Well, uh... You know, when I try to bring a piece of history alive, I try to do so by choosing 10 or 12 people whose lives I can follow through it uh, and whose lives represent something, you know, different political points of view, that they experienced certain events. And ideally, if these 10 or 12 people include people— who loved each other, hated each other, were fierce rivals, uh, and interacted in some way. It makes it so much the better. Now, when I I feel a little bit like a a movie director having a casting call, okay, who's going to be in my cast? Well, to get into my cast of characters, if it's 80 years ago, you have to have left a written record of some sort, uh, diary, memoir, letters, whatever. The Merrimans were ideal from this point of view, Bob and, Mary and Merriman, because he kept a diary uh, which survived the war, uh, even though he was killed in the war. She wrote a memoir many years later. And there are a lot of letters between them which survive. So this is the kind of grist that a historian needs. Plus, he eventually was one of the highest ranking Americans among the volunteers who went to Spain. So lots of people knew him, wrote about him in newspaper articles and memoirs and letters and and, and so on. Um, it also interested me that uh, he'd been a graduate student at Berkeley for most of the time between when they graduated from college in 1932 and uh, went to Spain. He in 1936, and she in early 1937. And then, as I was reading through their letters, uh, some of which are here in the Bancroft Library on the Berkeley campus, I almost fell off my chair when I saw the address that they lived at in Berkeley, uh, which is near the corner of Euclid and Virginia Streets. Mm. And when I walked from my house this morning right. to the Graduate School of Journalism where we're recording this podcast, I walked past their house, as I do mm-hmm. every, every time I walk to the journalism school where it's, I it's teach It's much a more class. expensive
1: real estate now than it was in uh, the 30s. It's true. Uh, but uh, but, but you, it have, also... you had these uh, two, uh, this couple where he is an econ grad student, and you have another couple, that another person is an econ grad student. It seemed like econ uh, was a much... Um, uh, more radical uh, discipline at the time in the 30s with so much turbulence, you know?
0: People were certainly interested in economics to try to figure out uh, how to get the United States out of the Depression. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, one of Bob Merriman's uh, classmates in the, in the graduate school was John Kenneth Galbraith, uh, who, who knew him well and praised him in, in later years, called him the bravest among us, also said he was the, the most popular graduate student at Berkeley. And Bob Merriman, so just to
1: stick with him for a second, he uh, becomes this high-ranking officer and he keeps a diary. But one thing I find fascinating about him as a figure is that he's also a bit of a cipher, mm-hmm. uh, to me at least, uh, that, you know, he's so committed to the cause. But there's a lot of more, you know, complications that uh, come into the story in that, you know, in the end, it's Stalin and Soviet, the Soviet Union that is supplying uh, the armaments uh, to buttress the Spanish Republic against the forces of fascism. There's a lot of purges happening in the Soviet Union, all these things. So the question is, well, what did it mean to Bob Merriman to fight this war? And what does it mean to be committed, on the one hand, to a social revolution that opens up social roles, gives power to so many people? On the other hand, you have to be an army officer. Mm -hmm. And how do you balance that hierarchical
0: system? Well, there, was a, a, there were immense political complications during this period, as you say, and in choosing my cast of characters, I wanted to choose people who represented different strains of, of those politics. A Bob and Marion Merriman, like most of the American volunteers, uh, were communists. Most of the American volunteers were either members of the party, which the Merrimans actually joined when, when they were in Spain, or they were sympathizers of the party. So I wanted to try to get as much as I could, you know, inside the mind of somebody who felt, you know, the Soviet Union was paradise and uh, that there was no problem that Stalin was supplying the arms to the republics to the republic uh, to fight. And and Bob Merriman was definitely a true-believing communist right to the end. Um, Interestingly, both Ernest Hemingway and George Orwell during their time in Spain at one time or another said true believers make the best soldiers because, you know, they don't stop to question what's Mm -hmm. going on. Hemingway famously said to a communist journalist – in in Spain who didn't seem to understand what he was talking about. He said, I like you people, the communists, when you're soldiers. I don't like you when you're priests, Mm -hmm. i.e. when you're telling me what to think. But there were other political currents in this period, and I wanted to choose people for the cast of characters who represented them. One who was actually started out as a friend of Merriman's was a guy named Louis Fisher, uh, a true-believing communist who was the Nation magazine correspondent in Moscow for many years, then began to feel deep doubts about communism at the time of the first uh, purge, by, big purge by Stalin in 1936, where Fisher knew some of the people who were put on trial and sentenced to death. But he went to Spain, found a cause that absorbed him, At the same time as he was getting deeply disillusioned with the Soviet Union, and he ended up one of the most famous ex-communists in the United States, a contributor to a widely distributed book called The God That Failed, but never regretted the time he spent uh, fighting for and working for the Spanish Republic. Uh, Another guy who I follow is uh, an Englishman, but who fought in the American battalion for almost the entire war, Pat Gurney who thought of himself as a kind of independent radical uh, in the British sense, uh, definitely not a communist. But uh, he said, sometimes you have to work with them. And they were the only people who were recruiting troops on a large scale to fight in in Spain so he said, I'll, I'll work with them if I must but he disdained the Communist Party because he felt communists had no sense of humor and that if and you he's s- a bohemian he's a painter a he's sculptor a sculptor and all these things right and he said if you tried to make a joke in a party meeting it was treated as if you had farted in church <laughs> and uh, so he represented a different strain um, George Orwell represented yet another way of thinking, um, a s- staunch man of the left, but very independently so, uh, very alert to the, the horror show that the Soviet Union was uh, turning into, but still felt that the Spanish Republic was worth defending. But he was going to do so in the militia unit of a small left-wing party and not in the international brigades organized by the Comintern.
1: Well, I love hearing you talk about this as a kind of a director, because I did feel like the the story is so marvelously orchestrated. And I knew that didn't just happen by chance. Um, <laughs> and you're giving some insight into what goes into the planning of how to write this kind of narrative history. So it's so gripping, you know, for 400 pages. And yet the seams do not show in the, in the storytelling. And um, one thing that I, I think maybe has been underappreciated in the reviews that I've seen so far, which appreciate the book a lot, but have not talked about so much I'd like to get into is the way that you draw upon uh, female writers or women who were writing in diaries like um, uh, Lois Orr. Mm-hmm. You know, most people, when they think about the Spanish Civil War, they think about Hemingway uh, and Orwell, but you talk about uh, Virginia Cowles and Millie Bennett and so on. And I'm curious what you think um, the women writers saw that the male writers did not, or what women who were, say, like, um, Lois Orr or um, uh, Marion Merriman, what do they see? They don't have the soldier's point of view, maybe, but they're thinking possibly about this kind of broader social Mm -hmm. fabric.
0: Well, Virginia Cowles is an interesting example. She was 26 years old when she arrived in Spain, had never been to college, uh, had never covered a war before, uh, and had gotten into journalism with great difficulty, uh, said, you know, for a woman to get an assignment as a journalist, you virtually have to convince the editor you're going to be there anyway, and can you send send him some stories? And that, it was on that basis that she got to Spain. She played the feminine card in a way. Uh, everybody who met her in Spain always comments on how beautiful she was and the jewelry she wore and the high heels she wore everywhere, even walking through the rubble in Madrid. And she was very good at asking, appearing a little bit helpless and asking men to help her and what was going on here and can you explain. But she noticed everything and wrote everything down. And I think she was the most alert and the best writer of any of the English language journalists in Spain. She... Saw through a lot of pretenses. I mean, it was she who noticed details like the nurses in the the uh, uh, hotel ballroom that had been converted into a hospital were peroxide blondes with painted na- nails, and then asked somebody, "Why is this so? What happened to the old nurses?" Uh, she also did something which virtually no other foreign correspondents succeeded in being able to do during the war, which was that she reported extensively first from the side of the Spanish Republic and then from the side of the Spanish nationalists. And boy, did she see a lot there? She was the first foreign journalist to get Spanish officers to admit that their forces had bombed Guernica, up to that point, Franco and Hitler had been claiming, no, no, we didn't do this when the bombing of Guernica caused outrage around the world. You know, Guernica was was destroyed by explosives left for, by repeat, retreating Republican troops. She found officers who said, yes, we bombed it and why not? Uh And the book that she wrote from that time called Looking for Trouble, I think, still makes a splendid read today, whereas the memoirs of the various other American correspondents and British correspondents who were there just feel quite musty by comparison. So I love it when I can find a lively voice like that. I love it still more when it's a voice the reader's not likely to be familiar with and still more when that's the voice of a woman because women's voices always get less attention in, in history than men's voices do.
1: Yeah, why is that? I mean, if you could, don't mind speculating for a second. why do you think in these earlier books about the Spanish Civil War, or even about the Americans, you know, there's been some books about the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, so on, um, why do you think those, those sources were not tapped?
0: Well, wars are pretty macho things. It tends to be men who write the memoirs and men who write the histories and it's always assumed that books about war are books basically for men. And when my publisher was uh, telling me the d- decision on when, uh, what would be the publication date for this book, he said two months before Father's Day, because war books always sell well as Father's mm-hmm. Day gift. Well, however, wars kill huge numbers of women as well as men. It was perhaps especially so in Spain because the nationalists had uh, an unbelievable ferocity towards dissident women, uppity women, women who supported the republic. Uh, there was a deliberate policy of gang rape by nationalist soldiers that was was encouraged. And that in the There's opening some kind of thing,
1: months— like Some kind of slogan like, you will give birth to fascist babies. Or something yeah, like that.
0: those things were scrawled on walls. And uh, nationalist officers talked about this quite openly with foreign correspondents in the early months of the war. And, you know, in Franco's Spain, women were not allowed to own property. They couldn't even leave the city where they were without their husband's permission. Uh, Nobody had the vote. Women couldn't open bank accounts. So you need women's voices to describe this kind of scene, and so I looked for them, and I was glad to be able to find them in Lois Orr and her remarkable letters. Marion Merriman wrote a memoir. Virginia Cowles, as I say, I think was the best English language reporter of the war. Those are perhaps the, the principal women's voices in, in the book.
1: let's shift gears and talk about an American who was on the other side of the conflict, on the side of Franco. Um, you reveal that there was one extremely powerful American fascist sympathizer uh, who was Torkild Reber, uh, the head of Texaco Oil. And this is one of the, I think, revelations of, of your book is that it shows how Torquild Reber uh, acted really to keep Franco's war machine humming. Um, could you explain what it was that Reber did for Franco and also, how you figured this out?
0: First thing is I think the question is, why didn't people figure that out at the time? Uh, here were these uh, nearly a thousand cumulative total of nearly a thousand foreign correspondents reporting the war, all based in Madrid. They were being bombed by Hitler's aircraft daily. And bombing was a big story, but they never looked up in the sky and wondered, whose fuel is powering those bombers. And it should have been an obvious question because nationalist Spain had no oil wells. Hitler and Mussolini, who were supplying the aircraft and the tanks and so on, were oil importers, not exporters. It would have been quite expensive for them to advance Franco the money to buy oil on the world market. this is one of the tragedies
1: because, uh, I mean, in terms of the Republican side, where they actually have gold in their coffers and they cannot buy the oil or they can't get the tankers uh, to Spain.
0: Well, their tankers were being... Sunk uh, in large numbers, and we'll come in a moment to the reason for that. And none of the correspondents seemed curious about this. Nor did, you know, newspapers in the United States. Is no, no one was asking that question. Well, it turned out that Franco had a great admirer, who was this guy Torquild Reber, who was the CEO of Texaco, one of the major American oil companies, a man who liked. Dictators, strongmen, whether they be Franco, Hitler, Mussolini, the Shah of Iran. Uh, He tried to finance a military coup in Mexico at one point. Uh, And he was quite happy to supply General Franco with all of the oil he wanted. Uh, Moreover, he did it at a huge discount something which he never told Texaco shareholders. It's not mentioned in the company's annual reports. And as far as we can tell from the minutes of their meetings, he never even told his own board of directors about this. Furthermore, he violated U.S. law, which is very strict about under what conditions you could sell anything to a country at war by supplying all this oil on credit with very long terms. Um, And he violated US law further by shipping it in American ships. The nationalists had no tankers. US neutrality legislation said you couldn't sell anything to a country at war that traveled in American ships. For Reber, this was no problem. Texaco had one of the world's largest fleets of ocean-going tankers. The tankers would load up at the Texaco pipeline terminal in Port Arthur, Texas, would show US customs agents who came on board paperwork saying that they were bound for Amsterdam or Rotterdam or Antwerp. And then at sea, their captains would open sealed orders, redirecting them to ports in nationalist Spain. A
1: lot of skullduggery going on here. So obviously he knew that he was violating American law, and he was very happy to do so.
0: And you asked how I found out about this. Well, if you read any economic history of the Spanish Civil War, there will be a sentence or two in passing saying that Uh, Texaco supplied General Franco with a lot of oil. Well, that made me curious. And then I found an article by Noam Chomsky about the Spanish Civil War that not only mentioned Texaco, but again, just in passing, uh, Reber, Franco-Sympathizer. So I thought, wait a minute, an American, Mm -hmm. Franco-Sympathizer, head of an oil company, there has to be more to this story. And I began searching for anything that I could find about this. Uncovered two articles written by the same guy, a historian named uh, Guillem Martinez, in obscure places in Spain that not only described what I've just told you about Reber supplying this oil, but he, Martinez discovered something else as well, which was that Reber was such an enthusiast for the nationalists that he sent out orders to Texaco offices everywhere, and any oil company has tank farms, loading docks, installations in ports all over the world, sent out orders everywhere saying, send in any intelligence immediately as soon as you get it regarding oil tankers heading for the Spanish Republic. This information was then immediately passed on to the Nationalist High command, Except for these two articles that uh, this man Martinez wrote in Spain, nobody's paid any attention to this. So I got in touch with Martinez, who very generously shared his documents with me. He'd gone, gone through the files of the old Spanish nationalist oil company. And in the book, there's one case where you can quite clearly trace the capture of an oil tanker bound for the republic. It's captured by nationalist forces to information supplied by Texaco. So the United States might have been officially neutral in this war, which is what history books will tell you, but Texaco had gone to war.
1: Yeah, and and it's one of the kind of uh, leitmotifs of your story is just how um, ragged the Spanish Republican Army was, how little supplies they had, how little they had in the way of actual armaments, uh, how little they had in the way of uniforms, and all these things, shoes, uh, I mean, and you just think about—I uh, think you, you call Reber um, Franco's banker. Yeah, you know, and he's just bankrolling it. And meanwhile, FDR is saying, "No, Americans cannot give anything to the—you know—the Republican yeah. effort." One thing I did want to get to you was this question we raised earlier about the Soviet Union's involvement in uh, the Republican cause. I think this is probably one of the reasons, I think in your acknowledgements, you talk about how the Spanish Civil War is one of the most argued over Mm -hmm. uh, phenomenon in history. You have a democracy struggling to exist on the European continent. It can't find allies in other democracies on the continent. It finds an ally in Stalin, and you call this a devil's
0: bargain. Mm-hmm. What do you see as the shape of that devil's bargain? Well, here's what happened: the war broke out July 1936 with the uprising of the generals. There were, at that time, there, there was at that time only a very tiny communist party in Spain. I think they had 16 deputies in the parliament of 500 plus people. Uh, the major democracies, Britain, France, the United States, all refused the Republic's desperate pleas to allow it to buy arms. Stalin, uh, then dictator in Russia, hung back as well. Uh, he didn't want to get involved in a war, you know, two thousand miles away, especially since he was busy having these colossal, bloody purges against his opponents uh, at home. World-class paranoid, But he was smart enough to know that he faced a real opponent in Hitler, because Hitler was already making noises about expanding into Eastern Europe, and he didn't want Hitler to have another ally in Europe. So after waiting three or four months, in which it became clear that the Western democracies were not going to help the republic, and that the republic would lose this war in a matter of months if they didn't get help from somewhere. Stalin agreed to sell arms to the republic, and the first one started arriving in in October 1936. In return for this, he demanded and got high positions in the uh, Spanish Republic's Army High Command and its security forces for both Spanish and Soviet communists. Um, And he was eager to make sure that uh, if there were to be foreign volunteers in Spain, you know, the Soviet Union would get the credit for organizing that. And they did because he sent out word to communist parties in all countries, recruit men to volunteer in the republic, fight for the republic. And these were the famous international brigades in which those 2,800 Americans fought. Uh, altogether, thirty-five to 40,000 soldiers uh, who were really the, the central and best and most crucial fighting force that the Spanish Republic's army had during the war. Because they came from other countries, a lot of them had military experience. Uh, you know, any man you know, beyond his late 30s in Europe at that point had most likely fought in the First World War. And the International Brigade suffered casualties at a rate three times that of the rest of the Spanish Republic's army because they were used as the shock troops. The Soviets certainly did leave some mark on the Spanish Republic's government and uh, forced it, uh, for example, to quite brutally suppress this small left-wing party, the, the PUM, whose militia Orwell fought in because... To Stalin, this party was traitorous since it was headed by former communists who had actually lived in the Soviet Union at one point, but who had become independent and were loudly criticizing his purge trials. And this was anathema to him. Oddly enough, the Spanish anarchists, who were much, much stronger in Spain, were not so much anathema because they came from a very different tradition and they had such widespread support in in Spain. The communist propaganda never quite demonized them in the way that they did the smaller party.
1: Mm-hmm. As your book plays out, I found that it gets really um, suffused with a sense of loss and a sense of grief. There's so many, you know, the Franco's army makes the push towards the eastern coast of Spain successfully. Uh, as you mentioned, there's so many casualties in that Abraham Lincoln brigade. And, you know, a lot of the characters that we come to really Uh, care for, love in some ways. They're cut down in battle, sometimes mysteriously. And, you know, this leads me to that question about how one deals with this grief and this sense of loss. And your title, Spain in Our Hearts, comes from a passage from the French novelist Albert Camus. I wanted to read that. Camus wrote, Men of my generation have had Spain in our hearts. It was there that they learned that one can be right and yet be beaten that force can vanquish spirit, and that there are times when courage is not rewarded. And, you know, these lines uh, from Camus, you know, suggest that one of the effects of the Spanish Civil War was almost a general disenchantment about, you know, what one gains in a practical way. You're on the right side of history. You know Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't allow you to actually beat a villain like Franco or Hitler or so on. On the other hand, I think about, so I have that Camus quote in one part of my brain. On the other hand, I think about how so many people who came out of this war, they might have been disenchanted, but they also redoubled their commitment to the various causes of social justice throughout their life. Um, And I'm wondering how you see this kind of, you might call it almost a dialectic of disenchantment and commitment, recommitment. How How did it play out in the lives of those who came through it?
0: Well, of course, most battles for good causes, whether they are a war like this one to preserve a democracy, uh, or whether they are a battle for social change of some sort, most of them are lost the first time around, sometimes the second and third time around, and it takes a long time to win. I mean, look at how long people had been battling and organizing against slavery before slavery got officially banned in the United States and, you know, European colonies in the Americas and so on. It took a very long time. And there are many, many people who took part in those battles that didn't live to see it. But I think with the foreign volunteers who went to Spain, those who survived uh, long enough to see Spain after Franco's death, began to feel that what they fought for did come into being. Spain is a democracy today. It has been really since a year or two after Franco's death. Uh, an attempted military coup in 1981 was swiftly rebuffed with the king of all people playing a very crucial role in that. And whatever its economic problems, and it's you know had a rough time these last few years, it still is a democracy today. And it's a country that has very warmly welcomed back uh, in recent years the international surviving international veterans who fought in the Spanish Civil War. Almost all of those vets are dead now. Certainly all the American ones are, are, are dead. But in— uh, 1986 on the 50th anniversary of the start of the war, and again in 1996 on the 60th, there were large gatherings uh, of veterans in Spain, veterans from the other countries who'd fought there. And at the Barcelona railway station, there were so many people there to greet them that the police had to hold them back with, with crowd control ropes. Um, and one of the moving things for me as I have traveled around the country talking about this this book is that everywhere I speak, there are always family members of veterans in the crowd and sometimes with very moving stories to, to tell, uh, some of which have to do with returning to Spain and the immense warmth with which they were greeted there.
1: Well, it's just an incredible sacrifice that these people from around the world made to identify with a cause um, that was separate from the land that they were coming from. And I know that um, William Dorischewitz wrote a positive review of a book in Harper's. Uh, He ends by reflecting on how remote, in some ways, the Spanish Civil War seems to him. And this Mm -hmm. this is what he says, and I'd like to get your reflections on this. He says, "Uh, what are we to make today of the Spanish Civil War and of the young Americans who went to fight in it? The conflict feels so distant now more distant, I think, and certainly more alien than some that are older, like World War One. It was a war of interest like every other, but it was also, especially for those who came from other countries, a war of beliefs. And we don't have that kind of relationship any longer to beliefs. Who among us of any age would put their lives at risk like that, not to protect their country or their family, but simply for an idea, simply for justice, simply for democracy? That's his kind of rhetorical question. Um, what do you what do you make of that uh, question and the way he's framed that issue?
0: Well, I would disagree, I think. Uh, I think a lot of the Americans uh, and people from other countries who fought in World War II, which followed the Spanish Civil War, would say they felt they were fighting to defend democracy, to defend countries from attack, to defend free societies from an oppressive one. I mean, you can argue about you know, a lot of the bad stuff that the Allies did during World War II, and they did. But I still think for the overwhelming majority of people who took part in it from this country, it, felt, it did feel like a moral crusade. And then there have been other times and places since then. You know, people gave their lives in the civil rights movement in the American South in the 1950s, in the mm-hmm. 1960s. What well, uh, Gary Wills called the Second Civil War. That's Right. That's right. People died. Uh, Black people, white people, Northerners, Southerners, putting their lives on the line for what they believed in. Um, So I don't think that spirit is gone in today's world. I think the important conflicts seem somewhat different. To me, the overwhelming issue in today's world are, are we going to rally for the battle against global warming? I think that just surpasses everything else in its importance. It doesn't lend itself to organizing a battalion to get on a ship and cross the ocean and fight, but it lends itself to being willing to make sacrifices, to speak out about it, to risk offending people, to risk arrest. I see the you know young people from organizations like 350.org getting arrested in protests at the White House, and I think, well, Maybe they're the nearest equivalent we have to the Lincoln Brigade today.
1: Well, on that note, uh, which is a more optimistic one, uh, let's end our discussion. Thanks so much, Adam, for talking to me today about Spain in Our Hearts, fresh from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt and available at your local bookseller.
0: It's been really a pleasure. Thank you, Scott. I've enjoyed it too.
1: Thanks also go out to Gina Pollack, co-producer of Chapter and Verse, and to the UC Berkeley Townsend Center for the Humanities, which has provided funding for the show. Feel free to follow us on Twitter at chapterversepod, and to check out our website at www.chapterversepod.com, where you can find other episodes of the show. You can also find us on iTunes, and if you have something you'd like to say about the show, please feel free to review it. We'd love to hear your comments. Thanks for listening, and join us again soon.